0: Hey, this is Dan, just dropping you a quick line before you start this episode to let you know a couple of things. What you're about to listen to is one of the classic best-of episodes of Assorted Goods in its older format. And by older format, I mean the sandbox and completely disorganized style that Assorted Goods was for its first few years of existence. Now, since then, the feed has been cleaned up, and there's 12 of these classic episodes And you should know, if you're a new listener, that these episodes are not really what the show is now. But they're still good, and they're still worth listening to. But just be warned that if you're looking to get into Assorted Goods as it is now, that you probably want to go to the latest episode in your feed. Start listening from there. Throughout the episode, you might hear certain things get mentioned, like the website or the social media. Now, those have changed. So don't go chasing those websites or links after the episode. Go to these ones instead. The website has now disinformed.ca, C-A for, you know, Canadians like me, and that's where you can find all the assorted good stuff that is mentioned in these episodes. You can find the source lists and additional information. They have all moved to there. In terms of emailing, you can email me now with the new email, dan at disinformed.ca, and if you want to follow on social media, Twitter and Instagram, the new handles are at disinformeddan. And hey, look, all three of those are kind of similar with each other, creating some sort of uh, continuity. People tell me that's important. But anyways, whether you're a new listener or a returning listener, I hope you enjoy this classic episode of Assorted Goods. And then I hope you subscribe to the show and come along for the ride with the new episodes as well. And as always, thank you for listening and enjoy. May 30th, 1921. It's Memorial Day in the booming southwestern oil city of Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's a parade going on. Most of the city is closed for the holiday. A 19-year-old black man named Dick Rowland is working as a shine downtown in the segregated part of the city. Roland had been born in 1902 under the name Jimmy Jones, an orphan when he was a child. He moved to Tulsa with his adopted mother, Damie James, at the age of seven, Jones then became Dick Roland, after he took the last name of his adopted grandparents who helped raise him, and then picked the name Dick, because he just liked the name. Roland would attend Booker T. Washington High School, an all-black school, before dropping out to find work. Later taking on the nickname Diamond, Dick Roland found opportunity working in the white neighborhoods, where, at the time, there was a lot of money to be made shining shoes. Tulsa had earned its title as the Magic City, thanks to the crazy amount of oil money that was coming in. So much money that oftentimes the locals wouldn't know what to do with it, generously tipping for services provided, like getting a shoe shine. On this holiday Monday, Roland was downtown in the white part of town when he needed to find a bathroom, as one does. And since he was working in the segregated neighborhood, his only option was to head to the top floor of a place known as the Drexel Building, home to some local businesses where he would find the only restroom he was legally allowed to use. Roland headed inside and for the elevator, which at the time was being operated by a 17-year-old white woman named Sarah Page. What happened next set off a course of events leading to a city descending into chaos and the worst incident of racial violence in American history. The story of the 1921 Tulsa riot is one that has been mostly forgotten, till recently where it's slightly eked its way back into public discussion. But this story doesn't begin on May 30th, 1921 and end a couple days later. It took a long time to build up to these two days of hell. This is a story that goes way back to before Tulsa was a city and Oklahoma was a state. This is a story of a nation forming, of how narratives shape the way we see the world. It's a story of conflicting accounts of lies, hate, ignorance and corruption, of racial violence and uncomfortable realities. But maybe most of all, it's a reminder that the past and the present share an unbreakable bond, that they're woven together, that history may not repeat, but it does rhyme, and that failing to face the hard lessons of the past leaves us poorly equipped to face the problems of the present. Hey folks, welcome to Assorted Goods. I'm Dan. Thanks for stopping in for this episode, and it's a special one. Part one of a deep dive into the story of the Tulsa race riot of 1921. it has been a while since I've done one of these single-topic episodes, so if you haven't heard one, be prepared for something a little different than normal. Still aim to bring the same quality as any other episode, if you can call it quality. And maybe it's worth letting you know, this episode is going to be a little more serious than a normal episode. These deep dive episodes aren't necessarily always going to be more serious topics, but that is the case for this one here. Our topic today deals with serious violent incidents, some of the history of race in America, a lot of stuff that may be a little uncomfortable, but this is a story that's worth telling. It has a lot of depth, so I hope you'll settle in and enjoy it, and I hope I do a good job of telling it to you. Now I'm going to keep the intro short for this one. I just ask that if you like the show, tell a friend, spread the word. And if you have any feedback, especially for this episode and for Part 2, which will come out one week after this one, but if you have anything to say about either one, find me on Twitter, Instagram, or on the website, assortedgoodspod.com, where you can also find the sources I used to write this show. Okay, now there's a lot of story to tell here, so let's just get into it. Now, I'm going to admit right away, I had never heard of the Tulsa race riot, and I was actually a pretty decent American history fan, for a Canadian, but still, never heard a mention of it. Looking back, issues of race, like the more specific stories beyond the years of slavery, are mostly glossed over, maybe just a small mention here and there, but unless you really seek them out, they remain pretty much just that, a short blurb or a footnote. American history really emphasizes the signing of famous documents and patriotic war heroes and larger-than-life presidential figures, not a whole lot on stories like these. Truth is, I only heard about it in the past few months the same way I think many other people did, and I was watching HBO's dystopian superhero show Watchmen. Now, not really any spoilers here, but the opening scene of the whole series is a recreation of the Tulsa Riots. It's an eight-minute or so scene filled with the brutalization and murder of the black residents of the city. Now, I, like many others, initially figured that this was some sort of elaborate backstory for a central character in the show. But in the following days, an opportunity to learn something took place. Isn't that rare? Scholars and historians shed light on the fact that this was an event that actually took place. And, I'm a person who just can't help himself sometimes. When I hear about some sort of crazy story from history, I just want to learn more. Reading about Tulsa was a shock. Just on the surface, it was almost literally unbelievable to me that this happened. I mean, of course I knew that American history is littered with racial violence, but this, the burning of dozens of city blocks, the rounding up and imprisonment of every black resident in the city, angry whites being deputized as law enforcement, only to end up carrying out the violence themselves? Can't be. No way. Too extreme to be true. But when I started googling whatever I could find, I could only come back to the same question. How? How can this have happened? And how can this be something that was just forgotten? Or maybe it was more about simply pretending it didn't happen. I wanted to figure it out, but I didn't know anything and I didn't know where to start. I guess that's where I come from trying to learn about all this, though. I'm a 20-something white Canadian guy. The very nature of my curiosity begins in a place of ignorance. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with starting at ignorance, as long as you're aiming to work your way up from there. Looking at the story of Tulsa, I realized I had a ton of questions. How did things get here? What really happened? Why was this forgotten in history? And maybe most of all, are there patterns we can find between what took place then and anything today? That's what this was about when I first started writing this episode. I've got questions, I want answers, and I'm going to share with the class what I find. I did get quickly struck by one thing, though, and it ended up being at the forefront of the story for me. And again, let me be honest, I've done the best job I can of trying to stick to this principle over the course of this two-part episode. But the very name, Tulsa Race Riot, is contested. The word riot fails to depict what really took place a massacre of innocent people by a rampaging mob, and the near eradication of an entire section of a city, guilty of nothing more than being a different color. As we go through this story, I do use both terms, riot and massacre, but know that they are linked. There was a riot leading to a massacre. From what I can tell, it was both, but we can't fail to keep in mind the connection between the two. It will become clear throughout the story that the way words are used the way that people are depicted, play a central role in the story of Tulsa and the larger story of race in America. I hope I've done a good job of choosing my words. Although, if you've listened to Assorted Goods before, you probably know that I'm a bit of a dummy. I have the best of intentions in trying to tell this story, but if something in the end is a bit out of place, I hope that, over the course of these two parts, we can work together to try to understand the whole story of Tulsa. And if you have any constructive feedback, please, reach out. I'm always looking to get a little smarter. I need all the help I can get, so don't be shy. But okay, let's backtrack here because I've gotten a little ahead of myself. As far as we've gotten so far, Dick Rowland is on his way to find a segregated bathroom and needed to use the elevator in a downtown Tulsa building. What happened in the elevator between Dick Rowland, a black man, and Sarah Page, a white woman, has been hypothesized about for the near 100 years since the incident took place. The story varies, drastically, from Roland attempting to assault Paige in the elevator to Roland tripping while walking into the elevator and falling into Paige to Roland and Paige sharing a secret relationship and having a lover's quarrel. The story told varies by who tells it and by what their preconceived notions were of the events. The story of Roland tripping while entering the elevator and falling into Paige is the one that is widely believed to be the case. Whatever the truth was, it's lost to history now. Neither person involved ever gave a clear account. All we know is that Roland entered the elevator, some sort of commotion happened between them, and Roland left. But we should pull the lens back and examine a little context before we continue. For one, Roland was a regular in the area. Again, he worked in the neighborhood, and from the accounts of the people who knew him, he was a fully reputable character. No devious history or anything of the sort, and certainly not capable of assaulting or raping a woman. Not to mention the idea of an assault by a black man on a white woman in midday, broad daylight in a public space in a segregated neighborhood within earshot of other people. Many accounts from the time state that Roland would have had to been out of his mind to attempt something so brazen. It didn't fit his character, and it didn't make logical sense. But keep in mind that this is the American South in the 1920s. A black man was not likely to receive the benefits of context in this matter, and nobody at the time seemed to draw on any of these logical suggestions. The mystery surrounding the events at the Drexel building also seems to be related to the fact that it was Memorial Day, and that most businesses were closed. But for whatever reason, Page and Roland were working their respective jobs, and happened to intersect at the Drexel building elevator, changing the course of history for a whole city. Now, through my research, I've probably been able to infer that the reason they were both there and both working was that just because it's a holiday doesn't mean that these two people didn't need to work for money. Roland probably saw the opportunity to make a little extra money on the holiday. People were downtown, which means they were still probably up for having their shoes shined. As for Paige, she was apparently a poor working class girl trying to pay her way through school, so it also makes sense that she picked up a little extra work on the holiday really doesn't seem like that much of a mystery why they were both downtown at that time. Jeez, look at me pretending to be a historian. Anyways, after the altercation in the elevator, apparently a clerk from a clothing store in the Drexel building heard Miss Page scream, saw Roland leave quickly from the elevator, and then found Page inside, distraught. The clerk drew the conclusion that an attempted assault had taken place, and called the police. There are no records of what Page told the police herself, but an investigation was launched although it wasn't a swift one. Roland wasn't arrested until the following morning, on May 31st. His adopted mother quickly hired a lawyer for his defense, as word spread of the alleged assault in the downtown building. In American history, there are serious connotations to any story involving a black man and a white woman. Lynchings of African Americans have often been linked to an accusation of assault on a white woman, which sometimes such as the gruesome 1955 murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi, was nothing more than an accusation of whistling at a white woman. History is filled with plenty of incidents where it didn't take much for violent racists to commit murderous atrocities. And even in 1921, there was fear amongst the black community of Tulsa because of the accusations levied against Roland. And it was understandable. The locals knew an accusation like this could result in mob violence. And in turn the murder of what they believed was an innocent man from their community. As we'll get to here in Part 1, the residents of the community of Greenwood, the all-black north end of the city of Tulsa, had good reason to worry for Roland. Dick Roland was arrested and taken to the Tulsa courthouse where he was jailed on the top floor. Sheriff Willard McCullough aimed to keep Roland protected on the top floor of the courthouse. But before the end of the day on May 31st, events would spiral beyond anyone's control. By nightfall... A crowd of over a thousand white Tulsans had formed outside the courthouse. Sheriff McCullough was worried that a mob may attempt to storm the courthouse and kidnap Roland, even possibly lynching him. A group of armed black men from the neighborhood of Greenwood then arrived on the scene, offering to assist the police in protecting Roland, but were declined. A confrontation then developed outside between the armed men from Greenwood and some of the armed white men there. Shots were fired. And at that point... Chaos and reckless violence engulfed Tulsa for the better part of the following day and a half. But, wait, 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 wait. We're going too fast. We've got to hit the brakes here. Because there's so much more to the courthouse confrontation that we have to consider. This riot didn't just happen because a black man was arrested, or because white Tulsans showed up to the courthouse, or because black Tulsans arrived to protect Dick Rowland. The chaos that erupted was the culmination of the history of both the city of Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma, and over a century of complex racial dynamics. Despite how it would be talked about in later years, the start of the Tulsa riot and ensuing massacre was never simply the result of one group's actions or another. Moments like this don't appear spontaneously. It takes a certain recipe of events, which gives us the opportunity here to go back, way back, and figure out my favorite thing, historical context, which we're going to need a whole lot of in order to make sense of the events so far we need to get to know the very land that all this took place on. Oh, Homer where the wind comes sweeping down the plain And the waving wheat can sure smell sweet When the wind comes right behind the rain oh, Now, I would be lying if I didn't admit that that song has been stuck in my head the entire time I've been writing this episode. But the state of Oklahoma wasn't very old by the time Tulsa erupted into chaos in 1921, only officially gaining statehood status in 1907. Oklahoma was originally known as Indian Territory and was acquired by the blossoming nation of the United States in 1803. America at the time would purchase a massive swath of land from France in what would become known as the Louisiana Purchase, paying $15 million, in 1803 money that is, the land that would make up almost all of modern Oklahoma was acquired. By the way, just as a side note, the land that was bought covers pieces of, if not all, of the modern-day states of Oklahoma, Montana, North and South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, Arkansas, and a little bit of New Mexico, Minnesota, and even small pieces of two Canadian provinces. America literally bought about one-quarter of its total modern-day landmass— such a fitting foundation for the nation were the almighty dollar rules. But anyways, here's a little kicker. France at the time didn't necessarily control the land that they had sold. In fact, they directly controlled very little of it. Native populations occupied most of that land. But this is colonial America, and since native populations were seen as subhuman, savage, and a lesser people begging to be brutally colonized, this wasn't much of a concern to the American government. Those labels placed on native tribes, by the way, were an essential piece to justify the violent aggression in the name of colonial expansion. How other groups are portrayed and the words used to describe them go a long way when creating a narrative, which I've mentioned before, but you're starting to see how it's coming together a little bit. Now, I know I'm veering off into a few sidebars here and there so far, but it's hard not to. There's so much to touch on, but okay. Now, the rights that America had purchased were essentially the rights to own Alt's land once they had dealt with those pesky human beings who were already living there. As for the part of the purchase that would become Oklahoma, at first, it was part of the Arkansas Territory, and over the first few decades, the land would be used as a bargaining chip in treaty negotiations between the American government and the existing tribes. Little by little, Native tribes were forced to move away from their homelands and further west, and in 1830, as colonial expansion continued, the American government got a little tired of these piecemeal negotiations with the people already living on the land. Under President Andrew Jackson, the Indian Removal Act was passed, giving the government the power to negotiate freely with tribes that were seen as being in the way, which basically meant that any Native populations that were in the way of white settlement expansion simply had to move out of the way. In exchange, they would receive land out west of the Mississippi River in the Arkansas Territory. The removal of indigenous communities all over North America took place around this time, with many of them ending up in this new region. This period of time of forced migration is now referred to as the Trail of Tears, when tens of thousands of people from numerous indigenous cultures were forced from their lands, and along their migration were subject to the elements and sickness, with thousands dying during their travels. Then in 1834, as a result of the final occurrence of a set of acts called the Non-Intercourse Acts, things changed again. These were six acts passed over roughly 30 years that dictated trade and land issues between America and indigenous peoples. By the way, like most of my deep dive stories, there's enough meat on this bone to be its own episode, but again, I'm trying to stay focused here. The 1834 Act, though, officially created the boundaries of Indian Territory, as it would be known for the next half century or so. Now, in the decades after Native tribes were moved to the Indian Territory a way of life began to form. Established communities, trade routes, systems of self-governance, and although there were divisions amongst the different tribes, things over time began to somewhat settle, and Indian territory was actually prosperous. But one thing to make note of is that it wasn't only white settlers who held slaves at this point in history. Native tribes also did. For example, during the Trail of Tears time, 17,000 members of the Cherokee Nation were deported to this region. And along with them came about 2,000 African American slaves. Slavery was a big piece of the colonial economy, and slaves were an economic piece to be bought, sold, and traded. And since tribes often dealt with settlers, slaves became part of their economic interactions as well. By 1860, the population of Indian territory was almost completely composed of relocated indigenous peoples and African American slaves, with the population numbers of the territory at this time coming in at roughly 55,000 indigenous people, over 8,000 black slaves, and only about 3,000 white people. But just as things were settling into some sort of normalcy for this territory of displaced people, the Civil War broke out, and chaos showed its ugly face again. Not all tribes owned slaves, and much like the division of states during the Civil War, there was division amongst tribal communities in the Indian Territory. Peoples of the territory would end up fighting on both sides of the Civil War, and in the process, the normalcy that was almost achieved was torn apart, as a sort of mini-Civil War took place within the territory itself, even within specific tribes. Just to make note again, there are some really interesting stories of history to be told about the battles that took place just in this part of the country during the Civil War, and I'm sure they're worth hearing, but again, that's going a little too deep, so let's try to keep it moving here. I know. I'm always falling off topic. Anyways, after the Civil War ended, the native communities in Indian Territory were devastated, and economically were set back decades. White people's bullshit causing the destruction of the economic opportunities of non-whites is something that seems to happen quite a bit in history. But okay, now hold on, that's a little bit too simplistic. The truth is, is that because of the whole taking sides thing during the Civil War, the tribes in Indian Territory were given a pretty raw deal after the war ended treaties signed were unfavorable, and most of the land in the central and western parts of the territory were turned back over to the government. There was additionally the inclusion of provisions where land would be designated for the construction of railway lines, something that would actually become key to economic growth there in the coming decades. Those treaties would also include stipulations that forced the enslaved people of these tribes to be freed, although emancipation occurred later in the territory than it did in the existing American states. As a result, the different races living in the territory would end up having to assimilate with each other, something that was not popular with some of the former slave-owning tribes. At the same time, on a larger scale, the Emancipation Proclamation came into effect nationwide, with millions of freed men and women now looking to build a life wherever they could. Indian territory would become a perceived haven for non-whites. In the post-Civil War years, thousands of freed slaves would make their way to Indian territory and settle with there being new openings in the territory thanks to the land that was turned back over to the government after the war. In the following years, black settlers from other states and freed slaves from former slave states and from within Indian territory would band together, and dozens of all black communities were established. The dynamics of the future state of Oklahoma were beginning to take shape, and the foundation of what's to come was being laid. Now, we're going to take a short break here, give you a chance to stretch out, take a moment, process all the information you've got so far. And when we come back, Oklahoma opens up its lands for settlers, bringing all sorts of people in and shaking things up before becoming a state for real. We'll keep this story going right after the break. As my baby, why she coming late? She said I do business, getting it straight. Don't you worry, won't be late. Then it's gonna be rolled up to you and it's gonna be straight. Oh my baby. Please be good. Knock that and I'll cut you wood. All right, welcome back. Now, before the break, we went and got a little ahead of ourselves again, but we're going to pull back here to the 1870s, where at the time, the territory still had a small white population. But in these frontier years, white settlers were always looking for new lands of opportunity to settle on, and there was plenty of that to be had in the territory. A movement began towards the government allowing settlement to occur, partially thanks to newspaper clippings bringing the unassigned lands to broader attention. By the way... It was around this point when the territory was first referred to by the name Oklahoma, which is actually the combination of two words from the Choctaw language, Okla and Humma, which translates to red people, which means, yes, the state of Oklahoma literally means the state of red people. But once attention was drawn to this open land in 1879, some public figures aimed to form groups of white settlers to move on in. The people who looked to move into the territory— became known as Boomers, OK Boomers, but the following decade or so saw numerous attempts to just walk on into the area. But multiple times, the government sent troops, people were kicked out, and some arrests were made. A prominent Kansas pioneer named David Payne organized some of these groups of settlers and was himself arrested multiple times, but he kept on trying. Payne was arrested and fined over and over for trying to lead settlers into the territory without authorization. And one time in the mid-1880s, he was arrested and then paraded through the native communities in the territory, who hated Payne for his continued efforts to settle on their land. But, nevertheless, they carried on. And thanks to the arrests, Payne's movement actually grew and gained support. And in 1889, in the last few days of the presidency of Grover Cleveland, an amendment was made to the Indian Appropriations Act, which then finally opened up the unassigned lands, about 2 million acres in total. These lands would be eligible under a land run, which was where people would register and then literally run out into the territory and claim land. Now, some people attempted to cross early and claim the best spots. These people would then become known as Sooners, thus the nickname the Sooner State. But any Sooners claiming land ended up entangled in all sorts of legal challenges and debates over what being early to claim land actually meant, what the official start time of the land run was, etc., There were claims on land revoked, land runs were done again, it was a messy process. But in the end, the Oklahoma Territory was born, and with a massive increase in white settlement, it was on its way to becoming an official state. In the years following, the African American population continued to grow as well in the territory, with those strong black communities we touched on earlier beginning to form and develop. The Oklahoma Territory was being sold as the land of prosperity for people of color, There even came a point where advertisements were sent out east to the states, trying to entice more African Americans to move over. But at the same time as all this, Native populations were being more and more muscled out of their lands, with the Curtis Act of 1898 abolishing tribal rights over any of the land in the former Indian Territory. For freed men and women in the post-slavery era, though, Oklahoma was a chance to establish a part of America just for themselves, where they could self-govern, own property and businesses, all things that really did begin to happen. As the 1900s came, black communities had built their own churches and schools, their own businesses. For the first time, there looked to be actual lands of prosperity for the freed people of America. But maybe a lesson should have been noted because the indigenous populations once thought that the territory was their own land of prosperity. And now were being more and more pushed aside as the territory moved towards statehood. In fact, in 1905, There was even a convention held where it was proposed that Indian Territory and Oklahoma each become states, a move that would have established America's only state run by indigenous peoples. There were even elections held, with congressional representatives for the Indian Territory being selected. Everything was ready to go, but the American government rejected the idea, insisting that the region should be just one whole state. And I know, again, there's so much we could get into here, Honestly, the deeper I got into this, the more I thought this could be an epic five-part series. But I am only one man, and I've gone half crazy just working on this two-parter. Anyways, now is about the time to narrow our focus a bit and look at Tulsa, the city at the center of our story here. Tulsa began as a small village along the Arkansas River, belonging to the Creek tribe. Its original name was Tulsi Town, and at the turn of the 20th century, Tulsa boasted a population of 1,400, something had just happened a couple years before that would change the fortunes of the region, literally. Oil was discovered just before the turn of the century, and in 1901, the oil boom began in the southwest, with old Tulsi town at the center of it all. On the other side of the river where the city lay were vast oil fields, and in Tulsa itself, a network of railroads was built connecting the city to each side of the country. Tulsa was in full boom before long, and at about that same time, Statehood, real official statehood, came, and the state of Oklahoma joined the union fully in 1907. One of the first things needed in a new state was a state legislature to create and pass laws. The first legislature was heavily controlled by the Democratic Party at the time, so they held clear voting control. Side note, because it's commonly necessary to point this out these days, but back a 100 years ago, the Democratic Party was the party of racial segregation, and remained so until the late 1960s. And just to think, all these years later, and the first black president in America was a Democrat. History is weird, right? The first order of business for the new Oklahoma legislature was actually to pass more Jim Crow laws, the racial segregation laws that swept the South in the late 1800s and early 1900s. These were the laws that prohibited blacks and whites from sharing the same spaces, establishing legal consequences for doing things like drinking from the wrong water fountain or sitting in the wrong seat on the bus. These laws lasted decades. Oklahoma had Jim Crow laws from its territory days, but under official statehood, the new lawmakers aimed to put more of them into effect, which, of course, helped to build upon the racial tensions in the region. But back to Tulsa here. In 1910, Tulsa's population was up to over 18,000, The black population of Tulsa had grown from 5% of the city in 1900 to 10% of the city in 1910, mostly thanks to people moving from outside Oklahoma and into Tulsa. At this time, a thriving black community had formed in the city's north end. The community of Greenwood found economic prosperity, like real prosperity. Wealthy businessmen and landowners had established themselves. There were thriving hotels, movie theaters, multiple churches, two high schools, a trade union... Dozens of businesses of all kinds, even multiple daily newspapers of their own, and a flourishing residential neighborhood all to itself, again, separate from the white neighborhoods in the south end of town. Greenwood would be given the nickname the Black Wall Street, since its economic success put it as one of the wealthiest black communities in the country. Greenwood was an amazing success story for the time, barely 50 years since emancipation, and there was a booming all-black community in a booming city wealthy black businessmen, even a few black police officers. There was a moment in time where it almost seemed that segregation be damned. Greenwood and its people would take care of themselves. If we were to go back in time to 1920 and walk up and down Greenwood Avenue, one thing that would probably strike us is the absolute variety of businesses. The numbers are astonishing. 30 restaurants... 45 groceries and meat markets. There were dry goods stores, milliners, uh, photography studio, dental offices. Greenwood is no longer called Greenwood. It's now known as Black Wall Street. This whole idea of self-containment really existed there. The dollar would stay in that community sometimes over three, five years before it ever went outside of the community. Now, that's an old PBS clip about Greenwood in the 20s, and the first voice you heard there is a guy named Scott Ellsworth, whose book, Death in a Promised Land, was one of the essential pieces of reading material that I used to write these episodes. Look at me. I actually bought a book and read it for this. Jeez, I almost feel a little bit legitimate. But there was some good stuff happening in North Tulsa at this time. But it wasn't the larger reality. This was still a heavily racist and segregated city, in a country that was still plagued by racial violence. A number of factors began to come together from about 1915 to 1920. First was the fact that a number of African Americans went to fight for their country in World War I, experiencing the same racist bullshit they got at home overseas while serving in the military. Many who fought questioned what it meant to fight for a country that didn't see them as equal back home. And, after the war, those who returned to Greenwood came back with a couple of ideas. One being that there was no way in hell that they should still be treated as a lesser people when they had fought and died for their country. And as a result, there was an increased belief in the push for equal rights. The second idea, and maybe the one more important to the story we're telling here, they brought back an outlook of handling things for themselves. Much like the very nature of the Greenwood community, if it had to be that black communities built their own schools, churches, and businesses, then they would also have to make sure that they defended themselves and handled their own justice if need be. If self-sufficiency was the path, then it's one that would be embraced and fought for. The previous years in Oklahoma and America as a whole had also seen a streak of lynchings. From the 1907 establishment of Oklahoma statehood to the days of the Tulsa Massacre, 31 people were lynched in Oklahoma, 26 of them were black, and all of them were men. Racial violence was rampant all across the South. The Civil War may have resulted in slavery ending, but the mindset of white supremacy never went away. Ideologies never really die. They come and go, fade off, and then re-emerge when the conditions are right. Racism just seems to be something that always rears its ugly head when there's a mix of circumstances, much like the world we live in right now. But, alright, there I go again veering off course, but Around 1915 was also when the Ku Klux Klan began to reform and reemerge across America, and I mean all across America. In a little over a decade, the Klan had outlets in every state, and Oklahoma was one of the most well-established. Part of the reason for the reemergence was the release of the Klan's famous propaganda film, Birth of a Nation, where black men are depicted as grotesque sexual deviants preying on white women, who are then rescued by heroic, hooded white men. This, just another example of the importance of how people are depicted in media, and I know you're going to hear me continue to hammer on that point between part one and part two of this episode. Jeez, it's almost like you're trying to get at something here, and I know, but I'm not trying to hide it. I'm being pretty clear about that. Now, at the time of the Tulsa massacre in 1921, there were about 11,000 black residents in the city and an estimated 3,200 known Klan members. And that's just the known members. Who knows how many sympathized with them or passively supported them? The dynamics in Tulsa were set up for an incident to occur. But again, there's still more context here. Because through the 1910s, white areas began to suffer through some economic struggles, especially in northeast Oklahoma, where Tulsa is located, thus creating an attitude of resentment towards the economically successful black communities that were going on about their business. Not to keep drawing a line to today, but how often now do we hear the term economic anxiety when discussing people who embrace xenophobic ideas against immigrants and other religions? But again, getting a little ahead of myself, bad Dan, stay focused. I know. Anyways, Oklahoma, before it was opened up for settlement, had very few whites. But as the century turned and the oil boom took place, whites became the majority, Combine that with the economic turmoil that was being experienced, a rising white terrorist organization that held positions of power, both in Tulsa itself and at the state level, trouble was brewing. As we get closer to 1921, the nation was experiencing problems in the post-World War I era. Returning soldiers had trouble finding work, and black soldiers, with a newly invigorated sense of pride in fighting for their rights, were met with strong resistance to their rejoining of the workforce. Labor riots broke out all across America, especially in 1919, where black veterans returning to the workforce were beaten, brutalized, and killed in numerous major riots across the country. While at the same time, America also battled with the ideas of growing socialist-backed labor union organizations. I know, it's a bit of a mouthful. But the fear of and fight against socialism was a big thing, it still is today. And Tulsa at the time was no different. A group known as the Industrial Workers of the World, or IWW, was at the forefront of the socialism battle in 1917, when the home of a local wealthy white businessman was bombed. Although it was not clear who did this, the local newspapers, the white newspapers in town, declared that the event must have been the work of the IWW, who had been regularly depicted in the local papers as a disruptive force of terrorism. Ironic, since, again, the KKK... An actual white nationalist terrorist organization was on the rise. But narratives can be a bitch, huh? In the coming months, the IWW headquarters were raided, and everyone inside, regardless of evidence, were arrested and put on trial. The local newspapers did what they did as well, consistently calling for harsh justice, including a few clips that stuck with me. The anti-socialist papers made sure to use descriptive words for the union members who were accused. Words like, RATS, Snakes, traitors, and even infiltrators of the enemy of World War I, the Germans. Throughout American history, pro-socialist and pro-union sentiments are commonly painted in the light of being the efforts of foreign infiltration or influence. A lot of charming stuff going on here. One article stated that although people wanted these folks removed from the city, that there was nowhere to take them. So instead of removal, how about concentration camps? Or, as another editorial stated... These were snakes, and that people should, quote, kill them just as you would kill any other snake. Don't just scotch kill them, kill them dead. Now, I'm sure here we can talk for a long while about depicting people as scum, or rats, or whatever, and the transition that occur from these kinds of depictions to actually rounding people up and putting them in camps. In fact, a group of people would do just that to another group a couple decades later. The Nazis, for the record got a lot of inspiration for the depiction and handling of their hated groups from the way the Americans handled their so-called undesirables. But, again, that could be an entirely different episode, which is actually a topic I've thought about working on before. But anyways, hopefully you get what I'm saying here. The use of news media and the narratives they can push do hold real power over how some people see the world. After the IWW workers were arrested and put on trial, they were being moved by police in the middle of the night, when their convoy was stopped by a group of hooded men in black robes calling themselves the Knights of Liberty. Shitheads always have this way of using nice-sounding words in their group names to make them sound like something they're not. I know, getting carried away for the millionth time. The prisoners were then taken from the police, with no resistance, I might add, and brutally beaten and whipped, while their original police escort just watched. Police in Tulsa had little, if any, credibility at this time. The city, as it turns out, was rampant with crime, prostitution, and illegal business operations. And the Tulsa police really didn't do a whole lot about it. And the incident with the IWW prisoners only made Tulsans warier of the police, since it appeared pretty clear that they were in on the little detour that had taken place in the middle of the night. If you were a black resident of Tulsa, I'm sure the trust in the police was minimal to begin with. But the incident was just another reminder and a fresh memory as 1921 came around. Then, there was the incident involving two men named Homer Nita and Roy Belton. Belton, along with two accomplices, had taken a cab driven by Nita when Nita was shot. Belton was arrested shortly after and was identified by Nita from his hospital bed as the man who had shot him. Belton was held in the top floor of the Tulsa Courthouse, the exact same spot where Dick Rowland would be held on May 31, 1921. News later spread of Homer Nita dying in hospital, Local papers called for justice to be served, and local residents answered. Hundreds showed up to the downtown courthouse, armed, some wearing masks, and demanded to deliver that justice to Nita. The police tried to stop them, but they were disarmed and watched as Roy Belton, a white man I should say, was dragged from his cell, right past the police, and placed in Homer Nita's cab, and then driven to the spot where Nita had been shot. Thousands of residents followed in their cars to watch. Belton, once they got there, began to deny doing the killing, but nothing was going to stop things at that point. He requested a cigarette and smoked it in silence before being hung. His body stayed up for 11 minutes before the support broke and Roy Belton's body fell to the ground, at which point the massive crowd of onlookers swarmed the body, tearing pieces of clothing as keepsakes. Tulsa Chief of Police John Gustafson would later call the lynching regrettable. Yeah, I'd fucking say so. But there is the important point to this story. This mob justice and its brutality was carried out by white residents against a white man, and the police didn't even try to stop it from happening. If a white man could be killed by mob justice, what chance would a black man have if placed in the same situation? So, let's take stock here, because I know, this has been a dense part one to the story. It was about here that I realized this story was going to have to be split into two parts, by the way. So here we have the state of Oklahoma, which, in its very foundation, lies the horrors committed against indigenous populations, the enslavement of people, then the integration of those former slaves, indigenous communities struggling to keep their land while white settlers arrive in droves looking to build their own communities. We have the economic anxieties of the 1910s and the re-emergence of white nationalism in the KKK. We have strong, flourishing, but segregated black cities, towns, and communities, A police force who doesn't do much policing when it counts. Government officials reinforcing racist laws. We have local news media with the power of narrative that is swaying public sentiment around major events. We have black soldiers back from war and not interested in being idle or relying on someone else to protect their people in times of need. And most of all, we have the recent events, establishing ideas of how the police handle and protect those accused of crimes. This is a city of Tulsa and a state of Oklahoma with a deep, messy history of racial tension and a lot of circumstances in the moment just waiting to boil over. These are all things we need to consider and keep in our minds, all these pieces coming together in the final moments before Tulsa was changed forever. And all this brings us back to where we were at the start of the episode. Dick Rowland was locked up on the top floor of the Tulsa courthouse, while an agitated white mob of over a thousand people many of whom were armed, waited outside in the streets. Memories of the lynching of a white man locked in the same cell just a couple years before were fresh in the minds of the people of Tulsa. And across the train tracks, in Greenwood, groups of war veterans were getting together to decide what to do next. The belief was that a man with a good reputation was being accused of a crime he didn't commit, and once again, like had happened so many times in America, a black man was about to be hung at the hands of a white mob. Nobody knew it at that moment, but America's black Wall Street, the pinnacle of black economic achievement in a post-slavery America, was in its final hours of existing at the level of prosperity that it had achieved. In part two, the breakout of the Tulsa riot and the massacre that followed. But despite all the history leading up to these events, what brought this massive crowd to the courthouse? What actually started the riot that would leave 35 city blocks burned to the ground and hundreds dead? More than that, what happened after? What was the legacy of the massacre on the city itself and on American history? And What patterns can we see in how events were seen then and how issues of race are still being portrayed today? There's a lot of stories still to be told and a lot of questions still to be answered. And all of that is coming in part two of the story of the Tulsa Massacre. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Assorted Goods. Again, I know this is a serious topic a lot heavier than what the show usually is, and I know it's very dense. There's a lot of information, and history can sometimes be a bit of a lull. But I hope that you'll come back for part two, and then, I do promise, back to some regular episodes for a while after that. If you have feedback on this episode, reach out, Twitter, Instagram, the website, assortedgoodspod.com. Find me, hit me up, don't be shy. Not a lot to say here at the end of the episode. Just stay tuned for part two. If you like it, tell a friend. If your friends haven't figured out podcasts yet, be the one to show them. Change their lives forever. All right, that's enough rambling. Thanks for hanging in there. And that's it for this episode of Assorted Goods. Take care, and I will see you next time. People moving up, people moving in. Why? Because of the color of skin. Rum, 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 but but the skin. Run, 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 but you can't hide. Love, my and brother, is the preacher teacher. And it seems nobody's interested in learning But the teacher, teacher. Segregation, determination, demonstration, integration is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness.